Welcome to another episode of the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast with me, Nathan Illman. So in this episode, you may have seen from the title, we're going to be covering something really important, and that is how to support student nurses with stress management. So if you're a nurse educator out there, someone supporting student nurses, or perhaps you are a student nurse yourself, you may be aware that there is quite a large literature looking at different ways to help student nurses with managing stress. And obviously, as we know, it's a really stressful time with the balance of academic work, clinical work, the balance of having a family at home, sometimes financial pressures, and not to mention the potentially highly stressful or even traumatic things that people might witness or experience as part of their training. So this is really important stuff. And in this conversation, I talked to Becky Petley, who at the time we spoke, which was earlier in 2022, she was finishing her PhD, looking at various different interventions and measures around well-being and stress in student nurses. And in a particular piece of research that she conducted, which we're going to be talking about, she covers a really important question, and that is, why do certain things work? So we're not just looking at what particular interventions work, it's actually what makes an effective intervention for stress management. And I'm not going to go into all of the minutiae of that, because Becky can tell you more about it, but we have a really interesting conversation about this, about the importance of thinking about, okay, well, what are the constituent parts of an intervention that help uh, provide that relief, that support, and how that's important for sort of replicating interventions and thinking about what works for whom. So before we start the conversation, uh, just another reminder for people that if you haven't already joined our community, you can do that. We've got a free Facebook group. You can just search for us on Facebook, Nurse and Midwife Wellbeing Mission, or you can head over to our website. By the time most people listen to this, I'm very excited. Our learning platform will be live, so you can join our Nurse Wellbeing Mission community for free and get access to some free courses. And I'm very excited that in coming months, I will actually be releasing a stress management course for nurses and midwives. So in 2023, if you're listening to this, that will probably be available. So I highly encourage you to head over to our website to have a look at the free resources and the sort of more advanced other paid resources as well. So I'm not going to delay this conversation any further. Here is myself and Becky Petley talking about effective stress management interventions for student nurses. Welcome to the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast, hosted by me, Nathan Illman. This is the place where nurse and midwife wellbeing are at the top of the agenda. Each episode aims to help nurses and midwives around the world flourish through informative, inspiring and practical content and conversations. So, Becky, thank you so much for joining me today to talk on the podcast. Um, we're here to talk about, well, your PhD research and a bit more specifically after that around this great review you've done around uh, stress management and behavior change interventions with uh, nursing students. If it's okay, just to begin with, would you like to just introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about your background in nursing and, and your qualifications after that and, and why you got into this kind of research area? Yeah, brilliant. So thank you very much for having me. Um, so my name is Becky. I am a PhD student at the University of Winchester. 
Um, my nursing career started, I was a healthcare support worker for two years in elderly care. Um, so that was doing palliative care and rehabilitation. I absolutely loved that, developed a real passion for nursing. So I then went on to study child and adult dual field nursing at the University of Southampton. Um, again, absolutely loved it. And one thing that really stood out to me was that I was really well supported. I had a brilliant academic tutor. I had really supportive supervisors on placement. Um, and so I managed to make it through. So because I was dual field, it was a four year course. I made it through successfully. However, many of my peers didn't. Many of them struggled with their well-being. And it really made me reflect on on why. Why was it that, that I managed to, to get through? Um, and some of my peers had, have had to, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, stop their programs. Um, and I also was very passionate about research. I did a lot of uh, research activities on the side of my um, bachelor's of nursing. And that led me to do a master's in psychology. So um, I went to the University of Surrey and I completed the psychology conversion course there. And then um, I was very lucky to be offered the opportunity for a funded PhD looking at student nurse well-being. Um, so I was very keen to accept. Um, and I went on to create the question of what are the necessary components of an intervention to improve the well-being of student nurses? So I've been studying this for the last three years um, and I have conducted a systematic review which we'll be discussing today. I've also conducted a case study um, and I've also gained some stakeholder feedback on the intervention components I've suggested um, and I'm really happy with uh, the outcome of my PhD and I feel I've got some really great findings that I hope will contribute to this area and hopefully improve the experience of student nurses. Amazing. And I, I guess I'm interested, so the, this um, research project emerged to look at the, the effective components mm -hmm. of wellbeing programmes. So do you want to just talk us um, through a little bit around why that emerged as a research question? What was the kind of problem before that led to that sort of question needing to be answered? So I think one thing is that uh, student nurses are individuals. They are they are uh, people in their own right. They will have a variety of uh, personal things that will influence their well-being. They'll have a variety of organisational things that will influence their well-being. So that means that there's not going to be a one size fits all intervention uh, on the individual level. However, um, universities also vary. So uh, what happens in student nurse education is that the Nursing and Midwifery Council regulates student nurse education and they provide standards that universities have to meet in order to uh, be able to have students who will become uh, registered professionals with the NMC. However, the way universities decide to implement that is going to vary and therefore the stresses students experience are going to vary as well. So it'll be really hard to have a very specific and bounded intervention that's going to work in every single setting. By taking the approach that I've taken and I've created a sort of a checklist of student nurse wellbeing, uh, that is based on three components I've found to be, be necessary for an intervention, which is a component to reduce the stresses experienced by students, a component to increase the support provided, and a component to help them cope with the inevitable stresses they will encounter during their studies. And by doing it this way, the universities are then able to reflect on their own course, um, individuals can reflect on their own lives, and that way you get that degree of um, fidelity to the intervention, and by that I mean that the core components are being implemented, as I suggest, without it being really, really rule-based and uh, narrow in, in how it needs to be approached. I love that. So, yeah, it's, it's providing that flexibility, isn't it? It's a kind yeah. of guideline of flexibility. I think, as we were discussing before, all too often people kind of 
you try and use this one size fits all people people jump on an idea that seems to be effective and try and apply that to everyone it's yeah. like the sort of uh, using using the hammer to oh, was it, what's that saying <laughs> using it thinking a hammer is the right tool to you know approach every problem basically right actually you need different tools don't you and different approaches so yeah i mean really interested just going back to your own experience um you mentioned that you had really good support which was um, one of the things which helped with your own well-being is that something that you noticed with your colleagues as well that, that, that people sort of they didn't get as, as good mentorship and, and supervision was that one of the contributing problems do you think I think so I was on a, a dual field program which meant within my specific course there was only 12 of us that dropped to 10 but two of them had very uh, extreme individual circumstances which led to them withdrawing but what that meant was that my tutor group was only made up of 10 of us so that meant my academic tutor had more time for us when we met as a group it was very much we got on really well we were a sort of a group of 10 who were really cohesive we could support each other it was a very safe environment now if you're looking at a program such as adult nursing specifically they will have huge tutor groups and there's also quite a lot more uh, variation in terms of people, staff leaving, staff joining. Um, so there's not that continuity of support. So their academic tutors, I think, were just so overworked. They didn't always have enough time mm. to provide that support that was necessary. I also think... Um, I was lucky to have great peer support, whereas sometimes that's lacking if you're in such a big cohort. Um, and then on placements, I also uh, often got on with my supervisors and that was key because it meant even if there was a very stressful environment, for example, the emergency department uh, is overrun, as we all know, the NHS is really struggling. But because I had supportive supervisors who, for example, would always debrief me at the end of a, a day if it had been really hard, if I'd been through a, a traumatic uh, experience or something they would always spend sort of five minutes working through that with me allowing me to reflect which meant that I didn't sort of panic when I got home as to how I was going to cope with the impact it had on me so I think a part of it was probably uh, that I was just incredibly lucky to have had that support put to me um, but I also think I made the most of it so I, I would say when I was struggling and I think some of my peers didn't feel able to do that whereas I was happy to send that email and say look I'm having a tough time can you help with x y or z and nine times out of ten they were able to help yeah again it's this kind of complex interaction isn't it between the support and resources that are available and and individual kind of responsibility and the way we interact with that isn't it because you're a person who was more willing to reach out for the support and the support was there and those two combined to give you an experience in which you felt uh, nurtured and supported and that obviously helped carry you through um, and ultimately I guess grow from those experiences whereas other people might not have the support they might not necessarily have the individual inner resources or willingness to reach out and it's it's quite complex isn't it I think on that as well, in, in my research, some students have said that um, they feel judged when on placement. And, and one quote that really has stuck with me is they said, I feel I'm expected to be inhuman. So things aren't allowed to affect me. I'm not allowed to have difficulties. Um, and because they, they were saying they kind of want to seek help from the people who were going to be assessing and judging them, they felt like the expectation was they just got on with it and they couldn't speak up. They couldn't complain because they were worried about what people would think of them. And I think 
that to me says that lack of authenticity, that lack of ability to really be true to who you are or, or to seek help is going to be a huge barrier to helping students with their well-being. And, and I think that's a cultural thing. We need to be able to encourage students to seek help when they're struggling and not to be a weakness, but actually to be a strength to say, look, this is going on for me. I really need help in this area. And then for the help to be there, as you say. Yeah. And of course, that has to be modelled by leaders, doesn't it? That vulnerability um, and sort of demonstrating that it's OK to speak up about things and to ask for help and, and not kind of creating a culture of perfectionism and everything has to be perfect here and we can't make mistakes. And, you know, I guess a shame based culture often kind of will, will extinguish, extinguish anyone's willingness to sort of speak up about things, because if there's an implicit expectation that they're going to be judged as being inferior or not good enough basically and yeah. which I imagine as we were talking about before you know identity and trying to trying to become the right kind of nurse is is something that those young students well I suppose not all student student nurses are younger but just student nurses are trying to sort of navigate that that kind of complex identity shift and I think one, one question I asked the student nurses in my research is, is there a difference between your personal and professional identity? Now, this was only answered by 45 students because it was at a case study. Um, so 87% said, yes, my personal and professional identity are different. I then asked, um, does this difference influence your well-being? And 56% said, yes, it does. Um, and what I found was that those who said that difference between their personal and professional identities influenced their well-being were basing their professional identity on external Internal things such as what others thought of them. Those who felt that it didn't influence their well-being were very much based on internal things like values yeah. um, or who they were as a person. And I found that so interesting because that gives us such great scope for intervention to try and get someone to, to think about, I guess it's acceptance and commitment therapy in the way of values-based living rather than focusing on how they're being perceived by others. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, as we were talking about before, like, I think we, we're both really uh, big believers in that, aren't we? And, and being guided by our values, that, that kind of inner guidance system basically is so important. And it's really interesting because, you know, we're talking about this idea of stressors and it, it almost sounds like it's a kind of it's an existential stressor, isn't it? This whole thing of like identity and not necessarily one that without speaking to people like you have actually asking the questions and really getting into people's minds about it you wouldn't necessarily uncover that would you as as a as a kind of um, important stressor that that we need to consider and, and work on I think it really speaks to the value of mixed methods research. It is from a very researcher's perspective. Like my systematic review was very quantitative. That was focusing more on data as such, uh, quantitative data. Whereas my qualitative work, my qualitative data gave it the depth and the nuance I needed to really understand the student experience. And I think that's one of the things we need more in this area is actually speaking to people because you can only know so much from a number. Like it's really hard to, to be able to understand their lived experience if you're focused focusing on a statistic absolutely and I think I find that myself when I'm looking through the research literature looking at things that are centered around nurse well-being and mental health is that it's you know it's great to have a paper that talks about the epidemiology of something or the quantitative data but then actually backing that up and triangulating with people's experiences is, is really essential isn't it because mm -hmm. not everyone's the same and I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 great that you, you've done that. So one of the key kind of contextual factors then is this idea of attrition, isn't it? So nurses leaving 
study, but also leaving the profession. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that sort of background contextual factor then and why why this, this stuff is important? Yeah, definitely. So uh, the figures of attrition for student nurses, and I know attrition uh, is very varies in the definition but essentially people who are not completing their program so these are students who start the program and then do not finish um so it is very variable but there was a big study called the repair project um, and this was uh, by health education england and professor mary lovegrove and it was looking at attrition throughout a variety of uh, healthcare education programs so we're talking radiology uh, nursing a whole host of things and uh the number they they settled on i think was around 33 percent. so that means that 33 percent of students who start their course are not finishing and some of the factors that were influencing that attrition rate were things that I deem to be preventable. So, of course, in any program, you're always going to have necessary attrition. So this is the number of students who perhaps fail their course or, you know, you're never going to get 100 percent completion rate. But 33 percent is, is way more than that um, necessary attrition rate. And the preventable reasons people were leaving were things such as finances or stress or, or mental health difficulties. Um, and there was also also another report by Health Education England that looked at the mental well-being of um, learners in practice. So that was was thinking of uh, medics and student nurses, a, a whole host of people. And again, what they were finding was that there were preventable causes of poor mental well-being. And these were things like cultural factors, help seeking, some of the things we've been discussing. So I think uh, there's a whole moral imperative for us to ensure that students aren't negatively impacted by their course and, and that they feel well and able to fulfill what they went into nursing for. You know, a lot of people enter nursing because they want to help people. And, and so it's really fostering that and letting them thrive in that environment. Um, but we also have a more pragmatic issue of we don't have enough uh, nurses in our current workforce to sustain the NHS in the form it is at the moment. So not only is preventing attrition in student nurses going to boost the workforce, however, it will also hopefully keep the nurses in if we can prevent uh, poor well-being throughout their training. And then hopefully that would reduce the number of, of nurses who are leaving once they've qualified. That's right. And this, this, this stuff around prevention is just is absolutely essential like in, in this area, but also just in society in general, isn't it? We need to focus more on prevention rather than, than treatment of things. And of course, because nurses, nurses are a huge population of the country, aren't they? I think, I think is it something around 700,000 registered nurses and midwives in the UK? Right, yeah. It's an enormous number, isn't it? So you know, nurses aren't like a small group of people in the UK. It's it's huge. So that's, that's a lot of people's mental health and physical health and just well-being in general that we're, that we're thinking about here, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. Okay, so should we should we talk a little bit about the uh, review that you did then, system yeah. review? Um, do you want to just talk us through, you know, I suppose you've talked a little bit about the background. Maybe just talk about what what you did and a little bit more about some of the specifics of um because you you chose to look at behavior change interventions as well as stress to just talk about the sort of background to that and why you looked at that yeah absolutely so just to say what a systematic review is in case there's anyone who doesn't know so essentially what we're doing is we're systematically looking at all the literature in a specific area to answer a question so what happens is you will have a research aim and then you'll create your method and that will include your search strategy so it will say the databases you're searching on to find your journal articles it will say your inclusion and exclusion criteria um, and it will say how you're going to extract the data so um, when I was looking at interventions to 
to improve the well-being of student nurses, I found there were so many out there and there was many that had overlapping concepts. For example, resilience was poorly differentiated from well-being or stress was poorly differentiated from uh, burnout, for example. So uh, it would have been impossible for me to systematically review all interventions that look at all of those different concepts. So I had to focus on one. And what I found was that uh, interventions focusing on stress was qu were quite well defined. So they had quite a, a good theoretical basis um, in some cases, and it was uh, enough enough of a, a pool of research to draw from that I'd be able to re uh, meet my research aims. So um, I decided to consider, uh, yes, interventions to reduce stress in the student nurse population. And I drew on uh, what is Lazarus and Folkman's um, model of stress. Now this sees stress as an appraisal or relationship between the person and the environment. And this is the reason I chose that uh, framework because it's not it's not saying that the environment doesn't matter, but it's also appreciating the role of the individual and in the way they interpret stresses, the way that they um, uh, cope with stresses can have a huge impact on well-being. So what I did was I separated interventions into three categories. So we've got those that focused on stresses. So they are the things in the environment that create stress in an individual. We've got cognitive reappraisal, which is the way that individuals view those stresses. And then we've got coping, which is how individuals cope with uh, the stresses they encounter. Um, so when I started doing this, I became very aware that many of the interventions were focused on um, behavior change. And I think it's really important to understand exactly how an intervention is having an effect. So this led me to draw on behavioral theory. And one part of behavioral theory is something called behavior change techniques. Now, these are the smallest component of interventions that are observable, replica replicable, irreducible, and designed to change behavior. So essentially things like demonstration of the behavior, instruction on how to perform a behavior, um, or behavioral practice and rehearsal. So what I then did was I not only separated the interventions into the categories I described before based on the model of stress, but I also looked at what behavior change techniques they were using um, and I think for me that meant that when I came to analyze the findings I had a really good understanding of what was effective in these interventions and what was less so. I think it's a really important sort of finer grain distinction to make isn't it I think there's there's a, a big call within the psychological research community which has been more sort of prevalent in the last 10 years is is to sort of dismantle specific components of therapies that that are actually working so we know that there's a big evidence base for, for particularly cognitive behavioral therapy for a range of conditions tons of studies but then it's a case of why what, what is it specifically within a package of therapy that's working for people and it's really nice that you went to that extra effort of going beyond just the review of do these things work for reducing stress to what is it about these things which is working uh, and you, you actually you you did you found some uh, interesting results with that didn't you so do you want to talk a little bit about i suppose just how many studies you extracted in this review um and and there was quite a, a wide variety of interventions so if you can just talk us through the, the sort of variety of interventions um that would be really good as well 
Yes, so I found thousands and thousands in my search strategy. Um, and so I went through all of those and I had one of my supervisors check the way that I was doing it just to make sure that, you know, I was making sort of empirically based judgments. Um, so overall, the ones that met my inclusion criteria, there were 22 studies reported in 23 articles. And these were from a whole variety of um, countries. And there were, I think it was 1,638 participants uh, were randomly so that was the starting number and there was a 93% um, retention rate which means that there was quite a lot of data for me to work with. Um, so in terms of the interventions across the 22 studies there were 28 interventions because some of the studies analysed more than one intervention um, and what I found was that the most of the studies were aimed at coping so 19 of the 28 interventions were aimed uh, at coping alone and so this included things such as my mindfulness and meditation. Um, we also had sort of some quite out there ideas such as dark chocolate, like some people ate uh, dark chocolate to see if that would help. I have to say the methodological quality of that study wasn't brilliant, but you know, that, that was an idea someone had. We had um, other mind body interventions like yoga or something called auricular therapy, which is uh, sort of needle based uh, therapy. And a lot of these did have a positive effect, but it was quite short lived. Um, so they didn't do a lot of long term follow up and a long term follow up that was done didn't find the effect was sustained over a long period of time. Then there were very few studies looking at the stresses. So no study looked at the stresses in isolation, um, but some studies looked at like the stresses and coping together or the stresses and cognitive reappraisal together. And they did find some positive results, but because they were so few in number, it was really difficult for me to conclude whether it was uh, the stresses being targeted or cognitive reappraisal being targeted or the combination. Um, and the ones that kind of spoke most to me that I felt were, were really good were the ones that targeted all three of the uh, stresses, cognitive reappraisal and coping. Now, only two out of those three studies found positive effects, but it's worth saying that the third study was a pilot study. And so that means it was based on a very small sample of participants. And doing some fancy statistical tests, they found if they'd had a larger sample, it is likely that they would have found some significant effects. Now, of course, that is very hypothetical, but I think it would be unfair to say that was unsuccessful and there is the potential it would work. Then in terms of behavior change techniques, there was quite poor reporting in terms of the content of the interventions, which meant that it was really hard for me to um, systematically code these techniques. So for example, a lot of them would have used social support, which is a behavior change technique, but because they didn't specifically state this, I couldn't code it um, and be sort of confident in that. So the ones that I found were used most commonly were demonstration of the behavior, behavioral practice and rehearsal, instruction on how to perform a behavior and bodily changes. And bodily changes is things like inducing relaxation. And most of these uh, were successful. But again, the numbers were so small I think these conclusions do have to be interpreted with quite significant caution. And I, I am calling for a lot more evidence in this area with really, really clearly articulated interventions so we can understand uh, these techniques a lot more. Yeah, so it certainly sounds like there's there's some things missing um, in the research. And something that really did surprise me, actually, was you said there weren't any papers that looked specifically at targeting stresses, um, which is really surprising and shocking isn't it that that no one has thought to look at okay asking or even the kind of like you have asking student nurses what are the stresses 
or working with organizations as well and then targeting those to because I, I guess in some of the traditional there are stress management approaches that look at obviously reducing stresses in your life basically from helping the individual do that um and of course there is some um in the sort of organizational psychology literature there's there are a few studies that I've come across that look in organizations at helping shift workplace-based factors. So basically helping reduce stresses. So yeah, there's there's definitely scope for for future research. And I guess that's um one of the big things you're calling for, right? Yeah, I think as well as worth saying, there are some studies that look at stresses, but I was only including what's called randomized control trials in my uh, systematic review. Yep. Um, so they are like the what's deemed to be the top quality one. Now, of course, that is a debatable thing that's probably outside of this conversation, but um, that's that was the decision I made based on the number of studies that were there and the, the need for methodological quality when I was evaluating them. But there was like studies that was looking at reducing the travel to placement, but the methodology was so poor it would be really hard to trust those findings so I think actually you know perhaps there is a whole wealth of literature out there on the stresses but because it's not been done at such a, a rigorous uh, or, or evaluated in a rigorous way it's really hard for us as researchers to know whether it's a uh, yeah whether they're helpful or not yeah and that's the sort of strange thing about research isn't it that even if it's published it's sort of it's then it's there's there's different quality of research isn't it it varies um, so should we talk about some, actually, do you know, before, before we talk about some of the wider implications, another question I had was actually around cultural differences, because I, I obviously with the range of interventions, I know there's, there were some more mind body type practices and I didn't look at all of the references of your study, but I, I was wondering whether you sort of perhaps just happened to notice whether these stress management approaches, did they, did you notice there tended to be any difference between studies that are published in certain parts of the world because uh, I know it's sort of 13 countries I think you found studies from so yeah I think what's really interesting is that if you look uh there was a big review a few years back that looked at the sources of stress geographically to see if they varied and they found they were incredibly similar internationally even though cultures and health systems vary there was a lot of similar things that were coming up and there's some seminal work by someone called Menzies from the 1960s and they found some similar sources of stress to what's impacting students today which is kind of to me saying we really need to move forward with this you know 60 years later and we're still not not really much more forward based on the research we had back then. But I do, I think a lot more of the mind-body interventions weren't conducted in the UK. So mindfulness uh, was more sort of Western in terms of it had been adopted by the US or the UK. But things like auricular therapy, which was that... Um, the needle points that that was based in the east um so i think there were definitely some geographical uh differences but i think what's really important is that we we learn from from all these different uh places that this research is being conducted particularly as similar sources of stress are found internationally yeah and that's the importance of, of looking far and wide isn't it we shouldn't just be biased in i mean it's hard not to be biased by things published in the english language but um yeah, it's certainly looking to the East as well as, as the West. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so should we talk about the sort of practical implications then of, of the research you found? So perhaps you could just talk a little bit about, I mean, you've sort of mentioned a little bit from a research perspective, but also on a practical level with individual student nurses, education institutions, what, what's the sort of relevance of your findings here then? 
So I think firstly, based on the evidence I've been able to access, it seems that improving coping is going to be beneficial, whether that is short term or, or long term. So I'm not completely excluding the need to uh, support students to develop those coping skills because uh, you could have as many resources and organizational perfection as you like, if such a thing even existed, but an individual will still experience stress if they feel unable to cope with the demands placed on them. And doing a higher education degree is hard work, like it is, it is really challenging. Um, and I think although these conclusions are tentative in terms of the benefits of coping due to like the long term follow up or the poor methodological qualities, I'm pretty confident that uh, the volume of literature I found in this area means that I can confidently say an intervention would benefit from including coping within it in some form. But uh, and this is a, a huge but. We also need organizational change. I feel like this has been neglected for too long. So I think it's unfair to place the onus solely on the individual. And I don't think we've explored enough the organizational impact of student nurses working in the culture that they uh, might experience and with the resource constraints that currently exist or the structure of programs where academic and clinical work overlap or where students are struggling financially. So they're having to take on part-time jobs or they have caring commitments or they have a disability. That means that they struggle in other ways. So I think although my review did, did support coping, the reason for that is because there just wasn't the, the literature in the, the stressor focused uh, interventions. And I think for me, that is the real, real world implication is that I, I really hope in the next few years, we get some more stressor focused things coming out to hopefully be able to show that we need a multifaceted intervention that appreciates the individual and appreciates the environment in line with the um, transactional model of stress. And the work that you've done as part of your PhD is, I guess, an effort to um, to address that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in my PhD, the, the most important thing has been stakeholder involvement. So that has been from the very word go. I have talked to uh, students, academics, educators, policymakers, uh, nurse leaders, um, those who are part of uh, the Health Education England who um, help run nursing programmes. I try to make sure I speak to as many people as possible to see what we can change organisationally in a way that is feasible because I don't want to come in with some huge organizational suggestion and then for people to say well that's just not pragmatic so we're not going to do anything it's getting that balance between what do students need and what is practical within our current systems we're working in yeah and, and also on a there's going to be differences on a local level isn't there with, with resources and and the buy-in of, of different stakeholders and the particular local needs and um, sort of populations they have so it's um yeah it, 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 again it's flexibility is really important isn't it as we were discussing before yeah okay and i i think just to finish off do you want to just talk about what you're going to be doing next so you you mentioned you had a job interview actually yes. um you don't have to tell us where or anything for confidentiality but what what do you hope to do you're, you're finishing your phd soon um mm -hmm. tell us about what you'd like to be doing next what your plans are 
So yeah, so my intermediate aim is to publish my findings because I really would like to uh, share them with the, the wider community and to show, um, you know, the student nurses and the academics and educators who have contributed to my PhD. They've given me such amazing insight that it would be a shame for that to not be shared. So over the next few months, I'm hoping to publish. Um, and then going forward, I want to extend my um, research and my research skills and become a more independent researcher. I'm also really keen on lecturing because um, I've done some lecturing throughout my PhD and it's meant I've been able to apply my findings directly to the student nurse population, which I think in a programme such as nursing that has such uh, a big practice component, it's a really, really great way to, to make sure that the research I'm conducting is really relevant to the current health system. So my plan is to, to get a research post or a lecturing post and develop those skills in order to ensure that I, I continue to contribute to improving the workforce of the NHS. Because I really think, you know, you have some incredibly special people who are trying to do their best for patients. And I'm just really passionate about ensuring that they're cared for as well such valuable work and i'm sure you'll be a real asset to you know whoever you whoever you work for and it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff and need more people doing it don't we need more people doing the research but also then then kind of translating that research into into policy and actual change definitely well thank you very much for having me it's lovely to have the opportunity to talk about it yeah no problem i've actually got one last question i want to ask you what, what you know you obviously having been a student nurse yourself and there, there may be some student nurses listening to this do you have any advice for for sort of nurses who are early in their career i think most importantly it's we, we've spoken about this slightly but it's the self-compassion piece so you i think the the dr seuss uh thing that everyone always says is you are you that is truer than true no one else can be youer than you and i think that is the thing like you're sometimes when you're overwhelmed by life or by your course or you failed an assignment or you've made an error in placement or or whatever you can feel like uh you're a, you're a bad person or like the whole world is uh is going wrong for you when actually like you are your superpower so I think it's to really like work on your identity and your authenticity and just to to make sure you spend time caring for yourself because you can get so caught up in caring for other people that actually you forget you know you can't help others if you don't help yourself first so I think for for all members of staff whatever stage of career they are at I just I really really recommend uh, that self-compassion piece brilliant thank you thank you once again for, for joining me on the podcast Becky. thank you for having me